Did God really grow Brian's brain? He came again. It was in a dream. He came and touched my forehead right here, right here, and said, I'm increasing your capacity to know me. And then I woke up. We ended up with the top brain mapping person in the world. I asked her, if God touched you right here at hairline, right there, what, what would that do to your brain? And she said, no, you don't understand. It would enlarge the capacity. Did God really give him secrets of Hebrew and Greek that no other translation has had before? The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. I told you I had a visitation from the one I love. He walked through my wall and breathed on me and released me to do this translation project. And he breathed on me and he promised me that that he would give me help and give me secrets of the Hebrew language, secrets of the Bible. Secrets that only come from above. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms. And uh, that was the beginning of the Passion Translation Project. Or is something seriously wrong with what's going on with the Passion Translation of the Bible? Welcome to my Passion Project. This is where scholars will test the claims of Brian Simmons about the Passion Translation so that you can know what's really going on with this wildly popular new version of the Bible. Today's interview is with a very thoughtful and scholarly Dr. Douglas Moo, and this is not a hit piece. It's not my fault that Brian Simmons is making wild claims. 90% of the biblical problems you have with understanding the text of the Bible, 90% of them disappear with the Aramaic text. Now, when Jesus came to me, one of the secrets he gave me was that of homonyms. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. He has embedded into the scriptures such profound revelation on multiple layers and multiple levels. In other words, every word God spoke and is written in the scriptures can have multiple meetings. I call it God's entertainment. I think he laughs when we read the Bible and say, oh, you think that's all it means? <laughs> In reality, these claims are either really wonderful or really terrible. There really isn't much in between. These reviews consistently seem to confirm that the claims are in the terrible category. But the point here is for you to have the information so you can weigh this out and think this out and come to your own conclusions. So I'm sharing these interviews, whether the scholars are saying things I agree with or not, that doesn't matter as much as just getting them to share their thoughts on these questions after they have reviewed carefully and thoughtfully the Passion Translation, in this case, the Book of Romans. And man, Brian has boasted in places that he had special extra, extra help from God just for this particular book of the Bible. God really helped me with this translation, with Romans in particular. I'm mega understating it. God really helped me do this translation. Romans is a hard book. I didn't even get through the first chapter. I'm saying, God, you got to help me. Two in the morning, I'm literally shaken awake by an angel. He says, I've come for the presence of God to help you. You might want to read Romans. Uh, I had such help. Douglas Moo does not seem to agree. As always, all the links are down below so you can read the papers for yourself and you can find all the interviews there for free. Dr. Moo, to have a uh, scholar of your caliber, and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable here, but you're, you're very well known and very highly respected. And it's just really exciting to me to get your feedback on this paper, the, um, the specifically the Passion Translation Book of Romans. And for those who don't know you yet, who are meeting you for the first time right now, could you tell us a little bit about your scholarly work and especially how it relates to Romans in particular. Sure, yeah, I've been uh, teaching uh, the scriptures now at the graduate level for about 45 years. Uh, about half that time was spent at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, about half at Wheaton uh, in the graduate school as well. Um, and during that time, for the last, oh, 20 to 25 years, my focus especially has been on the Apostle Paul with the particular focus on Romans. So I've written four or five commentaries on Romans. I teach Romans all the time. In addition to that, for this interview, it's important to note that I've been a translator of the NIV now for 25 years. Uh, there's a group of scholars called CBT, the Committee on Bible Translation, responsible for the NIV. Uh, I am not old enough to have been part of the original translators of the NIV. Uh, but I've been involved in the process of revising it now again for about 25 years. So I feel I have a pretty good knowledge of what's involved in Bible translation as well as the Book of Romans and 
So it seemed to me if I were going to be reviewing this translation of the Bible, a focus on Romans would, would make some sense. Yes, which is exactly why I was really excited to get you to do that. What What's kind of your bread and butter in a sense. Yeah. So let's, um, before we get into criticisms, because there's going to be a lot of criticisms that are going to be offered here, not for the sake of being critical, but because that's what comes out when you study this particular work. Uh, before we get into that, I'd like to ask if you have anything positive to say about the Passion Translation's rendering of Romans. Uh, sure. Uh, again, number one, uh, I think we could all agree that having a passion to put the Bible in the hands of people, uh, to put it in language that people can grasp and understand, that's going to uh, communicate God's truth to them, is a wonderful thing. So I, I hope we all have a passion for that, and uh, I admire the people that have that kind of a passion for it. Uh, I found a number of places in Romans where the I thought the rendering of the Passion Translation captured the, the meaning in colloquial modern English quite well. Um, so certainly there are those moments where uh, the translation has done done quite a good job. Yeah, good. And and we don't want to act like every page or every verse you look at, you're like, nope, that was wrong, that was wrong. That's, that's really not the yeah. case. In fact, in my opinion, Brian Simmons seems like he's He's like a really kind of poetic author, and, and that shines in a good mm -hmm. sense as you yes, read this stuff. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, your paper is neatly separated into seven particular topics or seven areas of concern about the Passion Translation. And for everybody who doesn't know, for all the scholars who are doing reviews on this, their papers are available for free down below in the video description, as well as on BibleThinker.org. All this stuff is available for free for you guys, just for your benefit. Now, let's talk about these seven areas, these seven topics of concerns that you had. The first one was confusing translation philosophy. What did you have to say about that? The Passion Translation has a lot of publicity talked about a meaning-based translation philosophy. That is putting the Bible into um, language that people can understand that will not necessarily follow the formal structures of the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic underlying the text. Uh, and I don't really have a quarrel with that as such. I think there's a place for those kinds of translations. And, and uh, on the whole, I think sometimes our translation philosophy is too biased toward a kind of word-for-word -word approach, as if that's the best way to translate. And anyone who's worked seriously from one language to another knows that word for word doesn't work. You cannot translate that way. You, you cannot be understood if you try to do, let's say, word for word from Spanish to English or from English to German or whatever. So I don't really have a quarrel with the claim for a meaning-based approach, but I do find that it is applied very inconsistently. So there are some texts and places where it's very paraphrastic, if I might use that word, where uh, the structures of the Greek are really left behind in order to get the meaning in English. And again, fine, if that's accurate, I don't have a quarrel with that. But then there are other places where um, uh, that kind of philosophy is not put into place. So for instance, in Romans 8, 4 through 11, Paul uses uh, the Greek word sarps a number of times. It's a notoriously difficult word to translate into English. We, we sometimes simply render flesh, but, but the word flesh per se in English often conveys, you know, the, the skin on my body. That's flesh. The Greek word sarks, very hard to translate into, into English, so I'm, I'm not necessarily following folks who struggle with how to do that. But again, a place like Romans 8, 4 to 11, you have Sarks used a number of times, and the Passion Translation simply uses flesh, which which really doesn't get at the meaning of that word in English at all. It just kind of replaces a single Greek word with an English gloss. So th there is an inconsistent application of the philosophy, in my view. It's done well in some spots, but in other places, it's sort of a default to a more word-for-word -word approach. So that was like that's like a woodenly literal moment in the midst of what a philosophy that's claiming it's doing something other than that. Is that yeah, kind of what you're at, at, at times, that's, I think yeah. that's fair to say. Yeah, you actually say in your paper that there are, and I'll quote you here, many places where ideas with no basis in the original text are brought into the translation. And there's problematic additions that you speak of. Um, Romans 8.14 is one of those examples. 
yeah, that's another issue here. Uh, anytime you've got a meaning-based translation and you're going to um, try to capture the meaning of the original in English words that don't exactly match the original, uh, decisions have to be made. You kind of have to figure out, okay, how am I going to do that? What 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 is the way to do that? And it's really easy uh, in order to capture a sort of good, accurate, even elegant English to add ideas that aren't really represented in the text at all. And uh, I'm afraid the Passion Translation does that uh, quite often, um, where there are, are words in English that simply aren't represented in the original. Um, uh, again, I could cite a number of examples uh, of this. Um, I think you mentioned Romans 8.14 as one example here. The Passion Translation renders mature children, um, and there's no basis at all in the Greek for the qualification mature. The Greek just talks about children or sons. Um, and, and so by adding the adjective mature in English, one is departing from the Greek and introducing an idea that might throw the reader of the Bible off what Paul is actually wanting to say. What sort of like application error do you think somebody could make it with the word mature placed into the text artificially? Well, the implication might be that it is only people who have matured to a certain level of uh, spiritual um, uh, gain that uh, are promised that they will have life. Uh, it's, the, all those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God, is what the text says. And if you add mature children into that, it suggests that it qualifies mm -hmm. the children who are going to be led by the Spirit and attain life, where Paul's promises for every Christian, however mature they might be, uh, that uh, they are the children of God and they experience life because of that. Yeah, I think this is, in my view, having looked at lots and lots of Simmons' teachings, as well as other places, a lot of other places in his translation, this is, it, it fits his teaching because he creates almost two classes of Christians. There's the mature and the immature, and he's regularly going around presenting himself um, as if he's sort of the spiritual guru who's going to help you unlock that mature mm -hmm. or the higher levels of glory. We're going to pray over you. We'll have a prayer line. And my wife and I will release the seal of fire. We have done this to thousands and thousands of Christians. And it's been exciting to see what happens. Some people go into transit. Some people get uh, caught up in the spirits. And I've been sent here today, no doubt about it. There's an anointing on my life to break depression off of you. And I really believe many of you here this weekend, you're going you're gonna to go to bed tonight, some of you, you're going to have encounters, dreams. It always happens wherever we go. He's talking about how if you take his classes or if you buy his courses, it will activate you. Every member of the body of Christ must be activated. Everyone in this room is valuable. Every one of you have gifts. And every one of you must leave this course when we finish a few years from now or a few hours from now. That you leave this place activated to be enriched and to give others what you've been given. The romantic, poetic, heart-filled words of God will fill you with new passion and God's revival fire. You will get to know God on a deeper and more intimate level. The very words in this translation will go right past the defenses in your mind and right into your spirit. The Word of God will become so alive in you and you will have a supernatural encounter with the glory and presence of God. I mean, he even, I don't know if you noticed this in Romans 12, 6, he adds the word activate to, mm. the, um, to the statement about those who who are going to speak prophetically, right? Who have prophecy, they have to activate their prophecy. And this is all, um, it seems like what it is, is it's, it's sectarian additions is what it feels like to me anyways. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that might be fair. I don't know uh, this man's the theology all that well. Uh, all I have really is the translation that I've worked with here and what I can kind of surmise from, from it. And of course, the, the issue you raise raises another matter. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm, I think, suspicious of translations that are produced by one person. Uh, I think he talks about consulting others, but I'm not sure who they were or what degree of that consultation might have been. Each of us has our biases. Each of us has our ways of looking at things. 
Uh, and uh, most major translations of the Bible are produced by teams of scholars. The, the, the NIV, we have 15 members, uh, male, female, drawn from different parts of the world, different denominations, theological perspectives, all within the evangelical camp, but nevertheless, deliberately, from different theological perspectives. So no single person or viewpoint can sort of be smuggled into the text. Um, uh, and the problem, again, when you have one person essentially doing the work uh, is that inevitably there, there might be biases smuggled in. I certainly wouldn't want to translate the Bible on my own. <laughs> uh, I, would, I would be afraid of what, of what the result would be and how many of my theological biases might show up. I, I love that. And I just would want the audience to recognize the the appropriate humility of an actually accomplished trained scholar who's got experience <laughs> in this field, as opposed to what we see from Brian Simmons, where he has some pretty wild claims about being inspired by God, being given secrets of Greek and Hebrew, and then bringing a translation. And Jesus Christ came into my room. He breathed on me and he commissioned me. And he spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you to translate, to translate the Bible, the Bible into the, into the translation project, project that I'm giving you to do. And, and he promised that he would help me. And he promised me he would give me secrets language. of the Hebrew language. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. He promised that he would give me new understanding and new, fresh revelation from his word. And immediately he gave me a download. Immediately I began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. God's given me a lens. Uh, all I can say is God has given me a lens. When I read the Bible, I see it so differently than I ever have before. And he's revealing himself in this hour like never before. The word of God is coming alive to us. It's like we're getting a brand new Bible, isn't it? Some, in some settings, he represents other translations with phrases like, angry translators make angry translations. You know, angry translators are going to have angry translations. And then he, of course... The subtext is he's presenting the love translation. Oh. All this stuff is just all a bunch of red flags. Now, the uh, the next issue that you brought up uh, was textual basis. And this is one that I think is a huge, huge major issue. I think it's at the very center of the issues with the Passion Translation. And all the reviewers have brought up this issue as well. But I think it's the kind of thing like the average person really needs help understanding. Because as soon as you say Aramaic, they're like, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. So <laughs> in the book of Romans, the Passion Translation, the 2020 edition, it references the Aramaic 53 times. Can you talk about that for a minute? Uh, sure. Uh, and we, we should note that in the footnotes, there are two levels of uh, what is going on there when they talk about Aramaic. On the one hand, sometimes he will simply say, oh, it might be interesting for you to know that the Aramaic has this. It doesn't really affect the translation of the text. Um, it's probably all right, but although I don't know why you would privilege the Aramaic in that way. More on that in a moment. Uh, more serious, however, are the places where the translation of the text is actually based on the Aramaic. Uh, this is a really serious matter, and this fact alone is enough for me to say I can't recommend that this translation be used by Christians as an accurate access to the Word of God. Um, all translators agree these days that you base your translation of the New Testament text on the Greek, um, uh, but you don't uh, base it on any other languages. Um, and while Aramaic is, is an interesting language because it was probably the, the language spoken very often by Jesus, the standard everyday language in the Israel of his day. So obviously it has historical importance in, in, in that way. Um, nevertheless, uh, our New Testament uh, is not based on the Aramaic. It's based on the Greek. So when you begin appealing for other 
languages, any other language, uh, as a basis for the translation into English, uh, we 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 we've really left the 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 uh, the, the, the field of, of of normal translation work. Now, now we're hearing from an actual scholar in the field here, um, and I keep throwing your credentials around, but that's because I, I'm trying to help the audience who's been perhaps a bit misled. It, there's there's places where Brian Simmons has actually told people and that he's the one representing scholarship, and he says that scholarship has changed in recent years, and that they now believe they're convinced the vast majority of scholars are convinced that Aramaic originals stand behind our Greek New Testament in almost every book. And that this is something scholars know. It's just a brand new thing. And now scholars are all running to the Aramaic to retranslate. All of our uh, Bible commentaries and our understanding of the New Testament is based on what is called Greek primacy, which is that the original manuscripts, the original autographs of the New Testament were all written in Greek. Guess what's happened in the last five years? This is really new. Brand new scholarship. Just like they discovered things archaeologically that are astounding, they have discovered, and I've, I've read the, the scholarly uh, reports, hundreds and hundreds of examples where it's been proven that the Greek manuscripts are second-gen copies of the original Aramaic New Testament. That virtually all of the New Testament, there could be some exceptions, but virtually all of the New Testament was originally in Aramaic and then copied into Greek. This causes all the scholars to freak out and go back to the trash can into the dusty corners of their libraries and pull out all the Greek or all the Aramaic manuscripts and realize that they, they had thrown away the, the originals. What do you think about that? It's just not, not true. There might be a fringe group of scholars who are doing that or arguing that. In terms of scholarship, you can find almost any conceivable view, as wild or as imaginative as you want to be with it. You can find somebody who argues something. But in terms of mainstream scholarship, whether evangelical or not, and it's not peculiar to evangelicals here at all, while there is recognition that uh, behind, let's say, the teaching of Jesus, there might be Aramaic, uh, that even uh, one of the Gospels might have been an Aramaic or had an Aramaic version at some point. Uh, all of that cannot really be uh, detected well. We, we, can't, we don't have the evidence for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, again, it's widely recognized by scholars on all hands that when you're doing translation of the New Testament, your job is to translate the Greek. Can the Aramaic sometimes help us understand the Greek? Yes, but we're not translating the Aramaic ever. We're always translating the Greek, which is the inspired form of God's word that's been passed down to us. So when you, when a scholar or say a translator, in the case of Brian Simmons, is using a term like the Bible's translated from the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, and then he talks other places of Aramaic originals, can I just say that that's just misleading? That's not true. Well, of course, in the OT, uh, part of the book of Daniel uh, and, and a couple of other fragments were originally written in Aramaic. That's where we do have Aramaic. Of course, he hasn't, he hasn't translated Daniel yet. So right. But, he's referring but, to the but, New but Testament again, primarily. Again, yes, their Aramaic is the original language we are working with. But for the NT, uh, no, Aramaic is not an original language in which we find the uh, text and should not be a basis for our translation. Great. Now, you also um, say that Brian Simmons uses, this is another one of the categories in your paper, which I recommend people read down below, that he uses something called false appeal to etymology. This is, again, I think a major red flag for people who study languages, but for people who don't, it just kind of can go right over their heads. Can you help us understand what is a false appeal to etymology? Yeah, modern linguists widely understand that uh, uh, etymology, or that is the formation of words, is not always or maybe even usually a very helpful clue to its actual meaning. Uh, in the paper, I uh, note, for instance, the English word butterfly, uh, which we all know what it refers to, but if you would try to define it by etymology, could, could try to combine a butter and flying, uh, you would uh, probably be hard-pressed to come to the actual meaning of the word as it's being used. 
So etymology can sometimes be referred to when we just don't have any other evidence for how a word was being used. Uh, but on the whole, linguists recognize that etymology is not a helpful way to define a word. Uh, and, and commenting on Romans 1.4, uh, the Passion Translation talks about the Greek word haridzo, which means declare or mark out, perhaps a point. And uh, the, the, the footnote says, well, we can kind of get a clue a little bit to the word, uh, uh, what, what this word haridzo means by noticing that the English word horizon comes from it. Uh, and that's just wrong on so many fronts, I don't even know how to begin. Uh, <laughs> maybe English horizon came from Greek haridzo, but surely horizon in English spoken centuries after the Bible has no bearing whatsoever on the meaning of the Greek word haridzo, as we find it in Romans. So some of the wild claims that are being made about the Passion Translation by Brian Simmons is, as I mentioned before, that God's given him secrets of Hebrew and Greek. There's one particular secret of Hebrew that he he tells everybody God showed him, and that is homonyms. And he says that Hebrew is full of homonyms, and he uses these homonyms to double and triple translate terms but then he adds other words to turn those into sentences. And he's said this is key for his translation. Hebrew is nothing but homonyms. It is a homonymic language. In other words, every word God spoke and is written in the scriptures can have multiple meanings. I call it God's entertainment. I think he laughs when we read the Bible and say, oh, you think that's all it means? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's Rubik's Cube. It's God's uh, entertainment. He has embedded into the scriptures such profound revelation on multiple layers and multiple levels. Okay, a homonym. Hebrew is poetic and passionate, uh, and one word can mean many multiple things. Now, when Jesus came to me and said, I'm going to give you secrets, one of the secrets he gave me was uh, that of homonyms. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic... Uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. I did a research study into that word etsev, which is the Hebrew word for pain, but it's a homophone or a homonym that has multiple meanings. And one of the other meanings of pain in the Hebrew context is creativity. Creativity. And I put a footnote there in the book of Genesis to note that. The word for singing is a homonym. Singing is a homonym that also means pruning the vines. Bethlehem is a homonym. Kala is an Aramaic homonym. It's a homonym. Nashak means kiss. But it also means to take up weapons and go to war. Uh, full of homonyms full of secrets with multiple meanings. When you say linguists all know that this etymology thing, like... Would you say, what would you say linguists all know about using homonyms to triple translate words and then form sentences out of them? Uh, yeah, that's, that's very problematic as well. Um, a modern linguistic principle is that you give any word the least amount of meaning necessary to explain it in its context. Recognizing that very seldom in ordinary human speech uh, do we intend a double meaning when we use a word. Yeah, sometimes if we're being very clever, maybe we're making a joke that depends on a double meaning of a word. That can happen. We need to recognize that. But on the whole, that's not how languages work. Uh, I'm sure all of us are aware of the danger of this kind of appeal to uh, spiritual direction. Uh, the spirit led me to, or the spirit told me that. Uh, I'm certainly not going to deny the importance of the Spirit in our lives and the way the Spirit leads and guides and uh, reveals things to us. Of course that happens. But, you know, I, I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, where he tells the Corinthian prophets, okay, you think you have a prophecy, let's test it. Let's, let's, let's uh, assess it in the light of what others are, are saying. And so uh, any claim of that sort has to be tested by others. And in this case, uh, especially, it's very dangerous to override the teaching of Scripture by appeal to some kind of 
prophecy or spirit-led kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Especially when, you know, when, when he says, okay, I'll show you my work. And the one time he says, here's my work, it's, it's etymology and homonyms. And these are like the things everyone's rolling their eyes. They're going, this isn't the, this isn't the work of brilliance and, and deep understanding of language. This is, this is, you know, fundamental stuff. In fact, I'd like to ask at what point when you're learning to translate, when you're studying languages, at what point are you usually disabused of false appeals to etymology? Uh, I think if anyone thinks seriously about language just for a little bit, uh, it'll be very clear that, that this is not a very safe uh, guide to what words actually mean. Um, uh, so I, I think it comes very early on, actually, uh, when you see how uh, language is actually used. Your fifth point in your paper relates to questionable interpretations in the rendering of Romans. What do you have to share about that? Um, again, uh, I, I don't want to be too critical here because I recognize, and we should all recognize, that to translate the Bible at all requires interpretation. There's no such thing, there's no possibility of translating the Bible without interpreting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not the matter of interpretation per se that I want to criticize. Rather, it's the um, um uh, questionable interpretations I find uh, in Romans, where, where one particular view gets locked in. Um, uh, for an example here, and I know this is a, a very debated one, so I don't want to, again, come down too hard here, uh, but Romans 8.29, uh, Paul begins a string of verbs talking about how God has worked on our behalf to bring us to ultimate glory. Uh, the first verb in that string is uh, a Greek word, prognosko, which is uh, difficult to translate, and there are at least two options there. In the Passion Bible, we have, he knew all about us before we were born. Now, that is a legitimate uh, option for the meaning of the verb, although uh, all about us is, is not really included in the meaning of the verb at all. So that's that's a bit going beyond the data, I think. Uh, but again, one particular view has been chosen here, uh, excluding the other view, which is that it's, uh, it's choose beforehand or set love on us beforehand or something of that sort. Uh, a lot of the footnotes particularly are problematic here. I don't know if people are using those footnotes or not, uh, how much they're reading them. Well, I can, I'll tell you this much is that there in one place, Brian Simmons talks about some of those revelations that God was giving him and God showed him to put those in the footnotes. It's not a day goes by. I don't discover something fresh, new, powerful that has changed my life. And I'm sitting there all by myself. Sometimes my wife's in the house, sometimes not, but I, I, I'm, I'm in my office and I'm getting these revelations. I'm going, how can I express this? How can I show the world these things footnote son footnote one of the things the lord imprinted on your heart is that he would give you some of the secrets to the language what do you think some of those are well i think uh homonyms he unveiled to me the the secret of homonyms that every hebrew virtually every hebrew word has multiple meanings and to understand that He's saying both, not just one. Right. And it, it's so powerful. It as enhances we, it. We put it in our footnotes. I love it. Yeah. I love it. This is unique among translations okay. where he's, he's claiming that the, the footnotes themselves yeah. are the result of divine inspiration on his part. Well, again, uh, just for instance, an example here from the first verse of Romans, Paul calls himself a doulos, normally translated slave or servant. The footnote says that this word is one who has chosen to serve a master out of love. <laughs> Sorry, that's frankly I hadn't read that nonsense. Yeah. That's just frankly nonsense. I don't even have to look. Uh, there that there one were up. millions of slaves <laughs> in the Greco-Roman world, and there weren't very many of them who were stepping forward and saying, "Oh, I want to be a slave to this master out of love for him." Yeah, it's just it's literally nonsense, and wow. so questionable interpretations in the text and then yeah. sometimes in the footnotes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't mean to laugh out loud here, but it preaches well, I think is the point. I, I think it's it there does. because, 
Yeah, it preaches well, and it's and yeah. and you you would know, and I know. There's times where, it, as a pastor, I, I want to teach, and I'm thinking, oh, that's such a powerful point, and then I go to double check, and I go, no, it's really not substantiated. And at that point, your integrity comes into play. <laughs> no, I I I, I warn my my students all, all the time about what I call homiletical expediency, choosing the interpretation that's going to preach the best, mm. rather the interpret that the text actually seems to be teaching. Yeah, yeah. I, su I suspect we all fall prey to that once in a while. Yeah, I'm sure it has happened to all of us, but, you know, how many of us have made a translation that does that Yeah. in, yeah. in the translation? But, all right, another thing that you mentioned, um, oh, I guess we've already spoken about the problem of the one-man band. Um, I, I will say this. I'd like to ask one question related to that. The idea of a, of a one-man translator is that Brian Simmons does actually work hard to give the impression that the Passion Translation has been done with the same checks and balances as mainstream translations. So this would include like the NIV, ESV, all those. But you've expressed concern about that. I did reach out to the publisher, Broadstreet, who they've, they've said they hired a number of scholars, a variety of scholars. I reached out for their names and info. I haven't got that info yet, so I'm not saying those people don't exist. But let's sidestep the issue of whether they exist or not. And I just want to ask this. As you look at the, the book of Romans, does it look as though this has been um, fact-checked and you know gone through for accuracy by the type of committee that should do it? Um, again, I can't imagine that uh, serious uh, scholars of Romans would have let some of this stuff through. Um, so I find it, I would like to know who those people are as well, um, uh, because uh, there just uh, are so many places in the translation of Romans where there are just kind of outright errors um, in terms of rendering the text. And again, appeal to Aramaic is another example we've talked about already, of course. Yeah. yeah again, just as, <laughs> as, as someone, again, who has served on CBT for 25 years, when you sit down in a room with 14 other scholars, uh, all of them uh, very, very knowledgeable about the word, ancient languages, ancient contexts, all of them very seriously concerned uh, to render the Bible into English, representing how significant a process that that is, that we are, we are choosing words that people are going to read as their Bible. Uh, and believe me, that's a sobering thought that, yeah. that drives what we do. You, you might have a particular view of something, uh, but you know what? It, 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 if it doesn't pass muster with those 14 other scholars, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and, so the types uh, of checks and balances mean like one person can't force their view. They're not oh, making no. the final decisions. No, there has it, to be a committee. No, it, it, takes, it takes about a 70% majority of CBT to change anything that is now in the NIV. So it's a very high bar. Uh, to, 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 to cross. Yeah, I'd like to know what, what the, if there were rules about majority, uh, I doubt it <laughs> in the past translation. Yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. know, obviously. <clears throat> yeah, now I'm going to get your quick fire responses. I just like some quick responses to these things. Your like one sentence response to each of these quotes. These are quotes that are about the Passion Translation. Um, for instance, this one is on their website. They say the following. The Passion Translation is a new version of God's Word that is considered a translation because it uses the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts to translate the essential meaning of the scriptures into contemporary English. I don't have a quarrel with that, actually. I think the translation does need to be seen as uh, uh, effectively bringing the meaning across from one language to another. So I don't, I don't actually have a problem with using the word translation there. So do you think that it's the, the, let me put this in a slightly different context. The Passion Translation presents itself as a translation as opposed to a paraphrase. Um, and what are your thoughts on that? I, I'm not myself very happy with the distinction between translation and paraphrase. Hmm. So you don't like the distinction itself. That's interesting. The other guys I've talked to have, have, have all just said, this isn't even a translation. It shouldn't be called one. But uh you're, 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 you just have a different uh, category to operate from, huh? Yeah, I guess I do. Interesting. All right. Here's another one. The, tr the translation reclaims lost Aramaic texts. 
bringing the full texture of God's word to the surface and helps you recapture the original essence of the teachings of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, yes, again, I don't think that, uh, I would like to know what those Aramaic manuscripts are. Um, I, I didn't see them. I, I checked the website. I didn't see them identified. So in, in, a, in a previous version of their FAQ on their website, he says he uses the Peshitta and the Roth translation of the Peshitta. They took the Roth statement off. Now it just says they use the Peshitta. Okay. The Peshitta is, is actually in Syriac, which is a kind of variant of Aramaic. So it's not quite Aramaic as it was spoken in the time of Jesus, for instance. And again, the, 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 the problem there is that we don't have any authoritative manuscripts of the New Testament Aramaic that come from a really early date. And uh, translations just are not based on Aramaic. So to use the phrase lost Aramaic texts, what the picture that, let's put it this way, if that puts a picture in my mind that there are some ancient, you know, first century, from the first century manuscripts, or initially at least, that shows the Bible was originally written in Aramaic and then I've, I've sort of restored that, I'm translating it from the original language, that would be a misleading thing, right? Yes. There's no evidence that even parts of the Bible, let alone the whole Bible originally existed in Aramaic, except again, those fragments in Daniel and Ezra that we talked about. Yeah. Which of course the books he has not translated, so he can't be talking about those. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, here's another one about the, the kind of translation the Passion Translation is. They say, this is on their website, the Passion Translation is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's word. Uh, again, uh, partly because of the inconsistent translation philosophy, partly because of the basing of translations here and there on the Aramaic. Uh, no person should view this as their basic Bible. Um, I question whether it gives us accurate access into the words of God. Now we have a quote here because the, the people who are promoting the Passion Translation are um, – particularly some very well-known, very highly influential pastors that are in the more, what I would call the hyper-charismatic uh, wing of the body of Christ. And they're believers, but they're in that that wing, you know. And Bill Johnson is one of them. He says the following, and this has been used. I mean, it's, it's put on the promotional material for the Passion. It's like him endorsing it as the commercial on Facebook to buy the Passion Translation. He says... Um, it, the Passion Translation is, quote, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime. What do you think of that? Um, I just would disagree. I think that, uh, that the Passion Translation, as far as I've been able to assess it, is just kind of taking a wrong turn on a number of points. We are blessed in English with many, many translations of the Bible with different translation philosophies. If you want a more meaning-based rendering, we have things like the NLT, which is a very fine work, uh, for instance. Uh, and I don't think the Passion Translation is uh, a useful addition to our, uh, our, 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 as it were, a series of English translations already available. So it's not one of the best things that's happened <clears throat> in our lifetime. Not in mine, at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, now the, uh, the next quote here is also on the Passion Translations, uh, promotional material. It's also in the new 2020 edition in the intro. It says, and I'd like you to talk about the accuracy of this phrase. Uh, the Passion Translation is committed to bringing forth the potency of God's word in relevant contemporary vocabulary that doesn't distract from its meaning or distort it in any way. Uh, again, I think every translation of the Bible aims for that. Uh, to carry over what the original Greek, in this case, as we think of Romans, uh, to carry over uh, what that original Greek means in colloquial, understandable, modern English. That's the goal all of us have. You just have to judge about whether that's actually happened or not when you uh, assess each translation attempt. And for those who can't judge, what, what's your judgment as far as does it distract from or distort the meaning of the scripture? Um, uh, I think I think both in its appeal to Aramaic, it's in its uh, uh, the additions that are added here and there, which we've not talked much about, but uh, there are a lot of words added that uh, might reflect good theology, 
but don't really reflect what's going on in the Greek text at all. Um, because of those things, I, I don't think the Passion Translation is a reliable guide to the Word of God. All right, let's talk about this. Um, suppose you're, you know, you're at your church, uh, which I don't know if anybody's <laughs> at your church right now or not, depending on what's going on with you guys at the moment. Yeah. But let's suppose that you're you're there, you know, it's 20, maybe it's a year ago, and you're at your church, and a Christian turns to you and says, I'm getting the Passion Translation. Uh, my pastor says it's the best thing that's happened to Bible translation in our lifetime. I, I really love this translation. The stuff I've read from it has really blessed me. If you just had like 10 seconds to tell that person what they needed to know, what would you say? Uh, I would be very cautious about using the Passion Translation as my Bible. And if they wanted to ask, I'll be willing to follow up with explanation. Yeah, and you could even give them your paper that you wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, uh, Dr. Moody, there's one question I actually almost forgot to ask you. I just came across footage of him actually saying, talking about his translation of Romans in particular. And he says that he was laboring through Romans. He spent like eight hours on Romans 3.24. He was like, just, it was taking him forever to do Romans. Yeah, I spent um, about eight hours working on Romans 3.24 just to make sure that I have captured it properly and uh, put it into the text. Romans is a hard book. I don't know. I, I translated it. I, I memorized it as a kid. But it was hard. I didn't even get through the first chapter. I'm saying, God, you got to help me. This is like, this is serious stuff. I mean, Paul's a genius. This is like, what is better than Romans? Two in the morning. I'm literally shaken awake by an angel. Just like you coming in my room, Wesley, waking me up. Just like that. I'm thinking, who's waking me up? And it was this angel that filled the the floor to ceiling. He says, I've come for the presence of God to help you. You might want to read Romans. Uh, I had such help. It, It had least amount of editing. My wife can verify it. It caught our publishers flat-footed. They had no clue I was going to get it done that quick. I mean, boom. I love Romans. God really helped me with this translation, with Romans in particular. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I'm mega understating it. God really helped me do this translation. I've had least, I've had less revisions, and I've had to go back and correct less things than any other work that I've done. And I'm not making this up. And I feel bad for asking you to give input on it. But according to him, God, you know, sent to him and and touched his forehead and that he, quote, expanded the capacity of his mind or his brain. He even talks about how he talked to a a brain mapping, the greatest brain mapping scientist in the world who confirms that this God touching him here would expand his capacity. It wasn't long after that that he came again. It was in a dream. And he touched my forehead. This is, again, something I don't share. Came and touched my forehead right here, right here, and said, I'm increasing your capacity to know me. (sighs) Touched me right there. And then I woke up. It just so happened that we were going to Australia, and we ended up, you know, it was a serendipitous supernatural connection. We ended up with the top brain mapping person in the world. She is from the UK, and she happened to be there with her husband. And we had coffee together, and I, I asked her, what, if, if, if God touched you right here at hairline, right there, what, what would that do to your brain? And she said, no, you don't understand. It would enlarge the capacity. When you, as, as a, someone who knows this stuff, when you look at the work, is it like a mathematician looking at Einstein's work going, wow, that was brilliant work? I mean, does it look like the mental capacity of the man had been supernaturally expanded when he translated Romans? Uh, I certainly don't see any evidence of that. It's interesting you mentioned Romans 3.24. He translates there at the end of that verse, liberated us from the guilt, punishment, and power of, of sin. Now, he puts some of that in italics, which he uses to sort of indicate his additions. Nevertheless, there's no basis in the Greek at all for those three different 
liberation words, guilt, punishment, and power. It's simply there, the, 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 the Greek says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So redemption has the idea of liberation or freedom, perhaps, but freedom from these three things, while maybe accurate theologically, is not in that verse at all. So again, I just don't see that kind of evidence uh, of uh, the claim about expanded brain capacity. We, we realize people can make all kinds of claims, but they have to be tested. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're really at sea, aren't we? Great. Thank you so much for joining and for being part of this project. It's uh, a lot of people are very grateful for it. And you're you're really helping because you just got to remember what it's like to be in sort of the fog of not knowing what a lot of these terms mean, looking for like, I just want someone to trust, you know, my pastor endorsed it, I'm going to go ahead and read this thing. And you're helping us get a more get more deeper into these issues and help build a bridge for people understanding the word of God that much better. So thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Next week's interview is with Dr. Craig Blomberg and it's going to be covering the book of 1 Corinthians in the Passion Translation. Here's a little preview. It's been proven that the Greek manuscripts are second gen copies of the original Aramaic New Testament. It's an astonishing statement. Um would love to know why he thinks this is true. The Society of Biblical Literature, the Society of New Testament Studies, um, the Evangelical Theological Society, the top several thousand biblical scholars in the world attend of, of all different theological persuasions or, or none in a few instances. And uh, they would rise up as one person and say, this simply is not true. This is made up. But before that video actually goes up online, you do have two opportunities to join me. On Friday, I will be doing a Q&A, a back and forth Q&A. I take your questions live from the chat, and that's at 1 p.m. Pacific time on my YouTube channel here. And then on Monday, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse -verse study through the Gospel of Mark into this amazing passage where Jesus talks about his deity. Just that should sell the Passion Translation. You know, you, you should get it just for that. You know, I would, if I were you, I would buy the translation. I would buy it. Please get the Passion Translation. Get my translation. Thou shalt get the Passion Translation. Thou shalt buy it. Thou shalt really get it. Oh, yeah, that's right. We got some.